We're back to Neil Haley Show, and I'm first excited to welcome my co-host, David Hollenbach of Hollenbach Leadership. David, how are you? And we're talking to, again, former cowboy and also Believe podcaster, Jesse Hawley. Jesse, thanks for stopping by, man. And let's go right into the beginning and, and about, did you always want to be a professional football player, Jesse? Um, I, No, I didn't. Honestly, I didn't. Um, football is not even my first love. Basketball is my first love. It's, it's what it's what attracted me to sports. It gave me my first kind of feeling of, of a team. And it was really the first time in my life that I, I wanted to be a part of something in a positive manner was when I first found basketball in the sixth grade. Uh, I, and that happened on a whim. I was literally roaming the streets and a friend of mine came by on a bike and was like, what are you doing? I was like, ah, nothing. He's like, well, come on, get on the bike. Let's go. I'm going to go to practice. And I went and they had nine guys and needed the 10th. And I, I, I played. I was like, I, I kind of like this. And I, I had a little attitude at first, but I, I knew that one day I wanted to do something in the professional athletic realm. Never thought it was going to be football. I didn't like contact. I didn't like to be hit. I didn't like to hit anyone in that type of manner. So uh, the, the fact that football turned out to be <laughs> The life changing thing for me is ironic, but uh, but I'm so thankful for it. Go ahead, David. No, I um, I'm curious if if you did play uh, basketball in high school, college, and all that. Do you think it would have uh, taken you away from uh, football? Yeah, I did play basketball in high school and college. Oh, right. Um, yeah, I was I was pretty good. I was pretty good in basketball as well. I was uh, I was an all American in two sports in high school, wow. and had uh, you know scholarship offers to go just about anywhere I wanted in the country. Um, played two years at North Carolina uh, basketball. I was a backup guard there. Won a national championship in two thousand five. But by that time, I had realized um, my 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 team had four lottery picks on it. We had the number two pick, five pick, ten pick, and a thirteenth pick. And from there, I was kind of like, this is this is old school basketball. This was like traditional point guard, traditional two, traditional three, traditional four, traditional five, not, you know, not the, what we have today. So back then I was like, man, there's 15 roster spots. There's two point guards, two shooting guards. And I wasn't a prolific scorer enough to be a shooting guard at six foot three. And that in that era, I was like, but football over here, I'm kind of good at this. And I had a better chance of probably making it professionally. Um because I didn't want to go overseas. I knew a lot of guys that went overseas and I just kind of wasn't into like leaving and going way over to some foreign country to play basketball. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to take my shot at football. And, you know, it worked out. It worked out. So where did you play college, play college ball? University of North Carolina. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. when you were at UNC, how good were you guys? If you're talking about all those – Really? Won a, we won a national championship in 2005. Roy's, Roy Williams' first national championship. Oh, man. So yeah. you're talking about playing with such superstars. How much did you learn about that? in Because, again, it doesn't show in your bio on Wikipedia that much about you in college basketball as much as, you know, you're talking about your NFL career. Thinking about playing, winning a national championship is almost as big as winning a Super Bowl in so many aspects and play with such amazing players. And you said all these lottery picks. What did you learn in basketball and being a two sport athlete? Because you kind of are like almost like a Dion in a way in college, you know? Yeah, I, I wouldn't compare myself to Dion. <laughs> uh, but I learned, you know, the greatest thing that I learned was to, to be a well rounded athlete because on one, on one take, in football, I was adored. I was admired. I was needed. I was. I was. I was the man. 
in all in all accounts. And then on football, it was more so of, hey, you have to do all the dirty work. And so you 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 now have to guard Raymond Felton and Rashad McCann. These are lottery picks, right? And you 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 now have to be on the scout team. You now have to help make these guys better. And you you now become the second and third option on the football field. I was the number one option as a receiver at Carolina. So it was kind of like it was kind of like a give and take. But what it did was it helped me on both sides become a better practice player and a better game player because on the football side, I could I could yell at a guy who was on the practice squad to go harder because I knew that I put in the work of what it took for a starter. And on the other side, when I was you know a backup, it it let me know how hard I had to help that starter prepare. So it kind of gave me both aspects of it, you know, how to watch film, how to look at little nuances when I'm, when I'm, you know, if they go, hey, you're gonna, you're playing, we're playing Duke this week, and you have to, you know, simulate what JJ Reddick does. So I have to go and study JJ Reddick and learn how he comes off screens, how he squares up, how he takes one dribble to the right and pull up jump shot, all his favorite moves. So then it helped me on the other side when I was going to watch film how to break down different things on either side of the ball to make me a better player. So it was kind of like, it was, it was, it was great because I had the best of both worlds. I always, whenever I, I get an opportunity, like hearing you talk, um, well, one, I'm wondering like where you grew up and you, and you said that you kind of had, uh, you know, you had a little bit of anger when you first started playing sports and I, I'm wondering where that came from. And then, as you move through your career, the different coaches and the different leadership styles that you encountered, how did that shape you and and develop you? Yeah, I was uh, you know born and raised in uh, in New Jersey, Roselle, New Jersey, and uh, I was raised by my grandmother, um, uh, my, myself and my two brothers. Um, you know, we lived a, we lived a very poor life. My grandmother made thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, didn't have a mom. My, my, my sensei didn't have a mom. My mom was alive, but she was a drug addict. My father was a drug dealer. And so, you know, didn't have that dynamic. And so I spent a lot of the early portion of my life in the streets. Um, so getting in and out of trouble, um, doing different things. Uh, you know, I tell people now, like, you know, as my athletic skills developed, like the kind of the OGs of the streets wouldn't let me kind of be on the ab and do drugs. They didn't let me sell drugs, hang out. But what I did was we stole cars. So there was always an edge about me. There was always an edge. When you when you come up in the street, you have to have an edge about you, right? Because it's either it's either kind of, you know, you know, be a wolf or be, you know, food for a wolf. And so you you develop a you develop an edge, you develop this this level of toughness. And I think that's carried me. That's you know, the negative aspect I turned into a positive because being able to be tough, being able to be street smart, being able to be um, uh, versatile and everything that I did, uh, you know, all those things. And one of the, my, the greatest leader for me was my grandmother. She just was always hardworking and showed you just how to be um, solid. And again, I, I come from a, a time where there were principles, even in the street, there were still principles. There was still kind of, I guess, honor among thieves. There was still a code of ethic that you, that you carried. And, 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 I've always carried that with me and I've always been a person that's been dependable, that's been honorable, that's been admirable. Um, that's going to do what I say I'm going to do. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes I bet, you know, my grandmother used to tell me at times, she would say, you know, always be a man of your word. And I was like, okay, cool. She's like in everything. She goes, because if you say it, then you have to do it. 
So she goes, be, be, be very, very wise with your words. And she was like, even if you tell somebody you're going to smack the hell out of them, you have to now do it. Because what you don't want is for them ever to think that you're saying it and you're bluffing. So it's things like that. And, and, and that's, that's a, that's a lesson that I've, I've kept with me today. Not that I want to smack anybody, but just being a man of my word, right? So being very conscious and cautious about the things that I say, the promises that I make, am I able to live up to those things and being able to say, no, I can't do it. Yes, I can do it. I'll be there. I won't be there. Whatever that may be. Um, you know, all those things have, have, have carried me through life, being a dependable teammate, knowing that I'm going to be in the foxhole with you, knowing that no matter what, no matter how I feel about you, no matter what you've done to me, if my job is to block this guy or run this route off or, or, or fill up this gap on kickoff, that I'm going to do it. You can, you can, you can bet you can set your watch to it that Jesse Holly is going to do what he said he's going to do, no matter how I feel, but because I made the commitment to do it. And and that's that's something that I think is a quality that a lot of people don't have uh, nowadays. But I just you know I, I do what I say I'm going to do, and, and I'm I'm, a, I'm accountable, I'm reliable, um, and and that that right there is enough for me. Wow, you know, and so that process, you, what you learned, how do you make sure when you've gone through your career and stuff that you didn't take some of the bad qualities that you learned? that weren't really great growing to move forward in your life to not go fall back. Like some athletes have, what do you think yeah. it was mentoring? You think it's different people that you went through that really taught you some of the ways to work on not bringing back some of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's coming through life and um, having nothing, then getting something, then losing it and then getting it back again. I know that life is far too valuable to just keep giving it away. I know that in my life that you don't you don't get many opportunities to do what I did, right? I go from a place where statistically I'm supposed to be dead or in jail, right? Raised by a single grandmother, less than thirty thousand dollars. That's poverty. That that's living in poverty. You know, you're not supposed to go to a Division One university, graduate with a degree in communication, and then be one percent of one percent and play four and a half years in the National Football League. I understand that. Um, there's enough people that's been around me that I've seen fail. Um, I'm, I'm a good, I'm, I'm one of those people where I can look over there and go, you know what? I'm actually going to learn from your lesson. And if you said the stove was hot and I see the burn marks in your hand, guess what? I'm probably not going to touch it now, you know? And, and that's one of been the biggest thing. And I've seen lives being destroyed because of, um, just foolishness. And I realized that I have a lot to give to the world. Um, and I have a platform through what I've done. Uh, and then, of course, my uh, you know, I don't know, this is, but my faith, my faith in, I got to even have my show, my, my faith in Jesus Christ, um, it always is a reminder for me is, is that I'm, I'm here for a reason. And um, I tell this all the time to young people is my name is not just my name, right? When you say Jesse Holly, there are a bunch of other people who share that name. I have brothers, I have a mom, I have aunties, I have, you know, I, there's a bunch of people. And then on top of that, I have a bunch of people that go, that's my friend. That's my homeboy. That's my whatever. And the minute I do something wrong, those people now look like fools because, because a lot of people will come back and go, that's your boy, right? Then you then weren't you the one to scream at the top of your lungs about Jesse Holly? Oh, look, he's arrested. So I, I take that with me every single day that my name is just not my name, that it has far greater meaning than just outside of it has far greater meaning outside of just me. And I'm going to go and I'm going to give David, even though I'm not to the level you are uh, as a brand, you know, you Google me, I'm out there so much. I sometimes forget about that. 
I forget. Yeah. I think I'm normal. You know, I'm a former professional wrestler, but I don't have the, I didn't have the Google ability that I have now with the celebrity views right. and just finding me all the way online everywhere. I never, I kind of forget that Jesse and what, what recommendation you do that? Cause you know, you kind of forget that sometimes you want to be normal and you walk around and then people Google you or look at you and then say, Oh man. And then they see you differently. How do you I deal never, with that? I never forget. I never forget. We live in a day and time now where everything, everyone's watching me, no matter where I go. And, and, and you never recognize it. Um, you go into a store, right? I remember going into the grocery store and standing at the, at the, at the, at the counter to, to get some lunch meat sliced. And I'm ordering my lunch meat and someone randomly walks up to me and go, I know that voice. And I look at him and I go, I don't know. He goes, no, I know that voice. And they're like, you're Jesse Holly. And I go, yeah, just randomly. So for me, I never, I never, ever, ever forget that I'm always being watched. I never forget that, um, you know, what I do in the dark will come to light. And so, and that way for me, I, I live, I try, I try. And I'm not this perfect saint. I am far from perfect. I'm far from the saint. But I try to just do things right. If I do things right and I do things in an honorable manner, then no matter who's watching, the outcome will be good. Right. And, and if I fall short of that, I fall short of that. But I'm always I'm, I am always in the mind frame of I'm not regular. I'm not. I'm, I know that I'm not. I, I haven't been regular for a very long time. I live the large majority of my life in the public and that's OK. But I'm always mindful of that. I'm always mindful of how I treat people. And it's not a front that I put on. This is who I am. And, and that part I'm OK with. I'm OK. One of the one of the greatest qualities that I think that I have is I'm perfectly fine with being Jesse Holly in any atmosphere because I don't you're going to get the same whether I'm in a room full of doctors I'm in a room full of celebrities I'm in a room full of poor people I'm in a room full of kids I'm in a room full of old folks I am going to be the exact same person every single time so that no one you can never say that he was this or that no I'm perfectly fine with who I am and being who I am and people either like it or they don't and I'm perfectly okay with that as well. I'm going to talk about, I was gaslit by a celebrity on Clubhouse, uh, your social audio app, it's dying, but I'm trying to bring it back. And I just, I always believe in humble because there's always somebody else that's going to humble you. So you have to always take that respect for everyone that you talk to and develop. And today's, I'm, a, I'm six foot 10. So when I was a professional wrestler, taking pictures with people and different things like that, I always learned. You know, you got to treat everyone with respect because it'll come back to you and you have to be that. And I don't understand the people with those egos. Like uh, I could talk to celebrities. I've talked to their egos, but you're, you're so awesome. Go ahead, David, with your question for Jesse. No, it's funny. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jesse, one of the things that you said was, um, you know, you, you came from nothing, you built, you got into the top 1%, you lost it, you came back and that, really made me think one of the things that uh, Neil and I just talked about the other day was, you know, this saying that I, I use in my book, I sign it when I sign my books, but it's be humble or be humbled. Yeah. And I feel like it's exactly what you were just saying. Um, I mean, that's what it means to me. And, uh, and I was just wondering if, if it rings true for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, in the Bible, it talks about, you know, pride comes before the fall. Right. And so we can, we can poke our chest out all we want. I believe that there's always been a higher power that's been guiding my life. 
and I don't deserve half the stuff that I have. Not even close. I I I haven't been a good enough human being to 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 say that I live a lie that I lived. I, I really haven't, you know. But I get a chance to do that every single day. I get a chance to say that I am the only person in NFL history that's ever made the NFL off a reality TV show. No one else can say that. Like, how cool is that to say that I'm one of one in a league of one percent, right? And so, I, um, I try to, I you know, humble is 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 a place where I come from. And I just try, I try not to ever forget that. I try never, I never forget what it felt like when I was an eight-year-old kid and didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. And at the end of the day, like, no matter what I did, whether I was Cowboys or Patriots or Bengal or Tar Heel or whatever it is, I'm human. I'm a man, just like everyone else. I cry, I bleed, I feel, I hurt, I love, I fail, I succeed. I just happened to do it at a, I just, you just happened to see mine, right? You just happened to see mine on display because of my profession, but I'm no different than the next man. And, and sometimes it, it can get away from you. It, it, it truly can get away from you when you have all the, the, the love and the adoration from people that are telling you that you're greater than you're the yeah. next best thing. It, it, you lose yourself in that sometimes. Yeah, you, you need to mentor believe. people like, you need to definitely mentor people like that, Jesse, that are on there, especially platforms like Clubhouse that think they're so bigger than life. And you, so let's talk about the reality show. I don't know that. I mean, I read it in the bio, but I didn't understand it. Explain why it was so big for you to do that reality show. Well, at that particular time, I had been out of I had been out of the NFL for about a year and a half. I was broke. I was poor. I was living on a friend's futon in Durham, North Carolina. I was working as a security guard from 11 at night to 7 in the morning. I would train from 7:30 to 9:30. Then I would go and work at T-Mobile, right? And from mm-hmm. from 10 to 3 every single day. And, and just a sidebar, I said this the other day. One of the one of the greatest things about that period of time in my story was People don't even realize that I don't even talk about it much. But every Tuesday and Thursday during that time, that year and a half, almost two years, I volunteered for free at the YMCA and I coached the basketball team of some underprivileged kids. And it was just not because I wanted to. I was tired, but it was I felt like that was my moment of giving back. Even even in the most downhearted part of my life. My, 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 this is who I am. I wanted to go and to give what knowledge and influence that I may have had over those kids um, and give it back and give back to them. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I got this random call uh, one night from the public relations person at the University of North Carolina, a guy by the name of Kevin Best. And I had been two years removed from school. And he just called, he said, hey, Jess, these people called me about this reality show that they're making up. I don't know much about it, but I just, I wanted to call you to tell you that I gave them your name and number. So be looking for a call. And I looked for a call and these guys called me a couple of days later. They couldn't tell me much about it, but there was this reality team that they were putting on and they were looking for guys um, who had the uh, charisma to be in front of the camera, but the skills to play on Sunday. And I went through this whole gambit and we don't have time for that. That's a, that's a whole nother yeah. conversation. But I ended up being on this reality TV show with six wide receivers and six DBs and we battled it out. It was, it was a show by Michael Irvin called Fourth and Long with Michael Irvin. And the winner of this show got a chance to be, um, to get a training camp roster spot for the Dallas Cowboys. And you go on this show, we shot for two months and um, I ended up winning this show. After I win the show, the producers, actually his name is Jesse. Funny part, the producer's name is Jesse and we share the same birthday. Wow. And uh, he goes, he tells me, he goes, I don't think you realize what you've just done. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, remember, I had to fill out an application and fax it in. Like, this is how old it was, right? There wasn't no, like, no scanning email. I had to fax it in. 
And he says, we sent over 100,000 out. He said, I had to do an audition in Orlando. He said, between Orlando, Dallas, Ohio, and two in California, we auditioned over 20,000 people. Out of that 20,000, we picked 50. Out of that 50, we picked 12. Out of that 12, there was only one winner, and that was you. And so I get to Dallas, and um, I don't get my playbook until the day I get to training camp. And normally, that's 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 dead man walking, right? And and and, and that time where, uh, you know, they were cutting every couple of weeks. Um, there was only 80 men. It's 90 men now. Uh, and I ended up making, being out of football for two years, being poor, getting on training camp, and making the practice squad that year where I made $100,000, right, in seven, 16 weeks. And then I had two more years on the active roster for the Cowboys. So, you know, I've been at the pits in the valley a lot, right. but I've also been at the mountaintop. All right, so we, David, I have to jump into the podcast because that's why he's on here. So basically, why podcasting? You said you're doing four podcasts now. So yeah. let's talk just about the Believe one real quick. Give us upset wave. What's happened there? Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, this is the wave, right? Things now. You know, we we you guys, we're probably relatively all somewhere close in age. So you know, when we when we came up, it was either like radio, radio show, which I still radio have radio. Shows. I still have this is on radio as well, man. <laughs> so this is not podcasting. Right. I'm a, I'm a hybrid and television. But go ahead. Right. Yeah. So that's what it was. It was like either you did like AM, FM radio, or you did some sort of big network TV, and there was no in between there, right? So it was like everyone was fighting for one of those two spots. Well, unlike athletics, you know, after a certain time, even if you pay 20 years, you got to stop playing. The body just won't let you. But radio, I mean, guys do radio until they're 80 years old. They just don't quit. And same thing in TV. Uh, and, and and then, you know, when this podcast thing came around, it, it kind of gave you an opportunity to kind of be, um, you know, more without the big networks and kind of just do your own thing and not censor as much with the F FCC and so on and so forth. Um, and to be honest with you, this is kind of the, 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 the maybe not so humble thing is I'm really good at what I do. Like, I'm really good at what I do. I think um, I think I'm an excellent storyteller, which is key. And I think I'm able to break the game down and give it to fans who may not be as familiar with football as, you know, uh, an advanced person. I think I, I think I present the game to them in a way that they can is digestible. Uh, and and I, I make the complexity of the game simple. And so I love doing it. It's 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 fun work. It's hard work, but it's easy work in the day. Um, and to be honest with you. People pay me to talk about football. It's what you and I would do okay. over, you know, over a glass of lemonade at the barbershop or exactly. you know, anywhere. And I'm like, they're yeah. going to pay me for it. Sure. Absolutely. All right. So we can check out the podcast of Believe. What is the name of the podcast and Believe? It's called, uh, it's called Believe with the, it's called Believe Cowboys with Jesse Holly. And then you have other three other podcasts working yeah. information on all of them. Working so um, I'm having, I'm starting my own, my own, honestly, my own podcast called unfiltered uh, with Jesse Holly. I have another podcast that I do A to Z sports, which I do the pre halftime and post game show with another guy named Will Steele I'm on A to Z, A T O Z sports, Dallas. And then I work for DallasCowboys.com, where I do a weekly podcast with three-time Super Bowl champion Nate Newton and a guy by the name of Shannon Gross and a, a writer named Kurt Daniels uh, called Hanging with the Boys on DallasCowboys.com. Go figure. I leave Texas, and now I know you. It's I, I have my <laughs> one client. I never – I lived in Dallas for two years and never saw Sean Stasiak. He's a former WWE star, and he, we were friends, and we never met. 
And now, now I have a connection in Dallas, but I'll be back to Dallas. Trust me, come brother. On, come on, right, back. We appreciate Barbecue you. on me. Oh, yeah. Or you might be at Radio Row with me in Vegas. So sounds good, oh, bro. Absolutely. Okay. And you get to meet the media giant. Good talking, man. Appreciate it, Jesse. God bless you guys. Thank you. All right. You're listening watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is author of Lethal Range, Ryan Steck. How are you? It's a Matthew Reed thriller. How are you, sir? And thanks for stopping by today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, man. It's good to be here. How did it all start? You becoming an author? Kind of how did that go? Were you always an author or is it something new for you? No, this is so this is new for me. Uh, Lethal Range is my second book. Um, originally, I was a, a sports reporter for like one year and I covered the Detroit Lions. They never won. It was awful. Uh, I ended up transitioning into the publishing world and I've been a freelance editor. I work with a lot of authors and then I run a website called therealbooksby.com where it's kind of like a one-stop shop for all things thriller. And at a certain point, you know, you work on books, you cover them, you start to realize like, man, I really love to tell some stories as well. And um, when I was in, in 10th grade, all the way back in high school, man, I uh, we had an English teacher with this really cool intern who gave us this assignment. And she said, you can do anything you want. You can swear, you can have violence, action, doesn't matter. So like any 15 year old kid, I went way over the top with that. And I went home and wrote a short story about a kid named Matthew Red who had to protect his school as like a vigilante. And now as like, by the way, I got suspended from school for uh, for a week for that. And um, so in my adult life, now I'm married, you know, you're grown up. I have six kids, new perspective. And I have like, six are... kids, but I'm soon to be divorced, but there's a difference, but I would keep you. Well, God bless you. Cause six kids, I know the struggle. Um, it is a lot man it's it's uh it's like jim gaffigan said you know what's it like having all those kids and he said imagine you're in the ocean you know drowning and someone throws you a baby and i'm like yeah that kind of fits um it's a lot but i just thought about this character that i wrote as a teenager and i thought where would he be today what would he be doing uh in today's world and i couldn't let it go and so i ended up writing my first book fields of fire came out last year uh, starred Matthew Red. He's back in Lethal Range, and uh, the kicker of it all is that uh, the principal who suspended me is now my kid's principal, and he's a super good guy. But I like to joke with him and tell him that Matthew Red got me a week off school and a book deal, so it all worked out okay. Okay, so the book deal. So who's who's your book deal with? Just that's awesome. Uh, so I'm with Tind Tyndale House Publishing, um, and I actually. Well, I have another announcement. Maybe we can come back, man. I have another really big announcement for another series I'm going to soon be taking over. Well, you just, you, just, you just make sure you follow me on all different social platforms. We're going to stay connected. You have yeah. to teach me about Twitch. I'm a social media. I have a social media podcast agency that's growing in other business ventures and lots of joint ventures. <laughs> Exciting times coming for me. Uh, and that's the fun part of, of, of building a brand. Like you're building yes. with your with on Twitch. You're building the same type of a brand or authors are seeing you as somebody of sort. It's like we can create something, then we have to find the TAM, which Neil Patel talks about all the way. And once we can figure out what the TAM is, we can figure out how much money we can make doing that. So that's yeah. the thing that people make mistakes, write books before they have a following, do all these specific things before they figure out, build as a creator. And there's so many opportunities as creators, but that's for another time. So do you hope this could be a movie? With the thriller end of it? Yeah, I will say. So in Hollywood, I'm repped by WME. And we oh, wow. uh, literally wrote the part for Jason Momoa. 
Uh, Matthew Red sort of is Jason Momoa, and we just kind of got to his camp and, and uh, got him the books and everything, and then the strikes happened. So now no one's talking, no one knows what's going on. And of course, it's like the worst timing ever for me, but as a writer, you know, I, I can't argue that I stand with, with, with the people striking for sure. Um, hopefully everyone comes back to the table, deal gets done. And Jason, you know, wants to talk yeah. about this because I would love for him to do it. So how did you get rep by WME? Was it based on your following or do you think it was just, or are you just, you hustled? I mean, so Mike, through the literary side, um, I had a big following in, in publishing because the book spies up to 2 million readers. So we kind of make some noise with that. My literary agent, John Talbot, was the one who suggested that we go to WME and they read the books, really liked them and said, yeah, we want to rep this and uh, we want to shop them. So you sold 2 million books. No, but I have 2 million followers on the book spy. I, I would love to sell 2 million books. We're, so explain that. So you see, I, you've never had an interview like this, but that's because I'm a marketer and I want to learn this stuff and I'm all about learning and to be this sponge. So 2 million followers on one of your platforms. Correct. Yeah. So the realbooksby.com is uh it's a website. I've literally worked as like a critic and an insider for thrillers. So if you enjoy um, thriller novels, that's a website for you. Uh, interviews, Q and A's, cover reviews, book deal announcements everything so we kind of do it all there and uh built a big following with that that's fantastic it's a lot, lot of great things and how do you think you built the following hustling or just really niching down into that area and then figuring out thrillers and see that there was no real competition so you could that's push what it. it was yeah there was no one sh so it's a little bit like um in, in the literary world thrillers are sort of like action movies when you watch the Oscars, and I don't, I don't watch the Oscars, but I always Google who won, and I've never heard of any of the movies that win Best Picture, like, ever. But I always see Mission Impossible. I see Fast and Furious. They make a billion dollars. Well, in the literary world, that's what thrillers do. It's the same thing, but they're kind of like that redheaded stepchild, if you will. They don't ever get the love or the coverage that other genres do. But they're so, buying a thriller for me. That's not yeah. horror. That's not horror thriller, right? No. I mean, it could. So there's a lot falls under the umbrella of thriller, but I like to say anything that gets your heart right up a little bit and makes you want to stay up all night reading it. And so next to romance, that's number and 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 true crime. That's probably the top three, right? It's up there. Yeah. I mean, when are you gonna have your own thriller too. podcast? You interview the authors. When are you gonna have your yeah. own thriller podcast? We're just reading. Yeah, we're working on it. Yeah, for sure, working on it. I think you because you could definitely have that skill set. So what why should people read this book? It's because it's second in the series, right? And you had success yeah. in the first one. Yeah, I mean, so the whole like idea with this series is we never see these household name characters. You don't see Jack Ryan or Jason Bourne out west. And if you think about it, when you have these lone wolf operator types, <clears throat> it's a perfect place for them. When you're out west, backup is hours away at best, at worst days. So you're on your own. That heightens everything from the tension to the suspense. <clears throat> it raises the stakes. And I thought it's kind of the perfect place to put a guy like Matthew Red. He's six foot three, 265. He's a sledgehammer in a scalpel's world. <clears throat> and he, he's come back home on the first one to investigate the, the death of his adopted father and uncovers a global conspiracy, ends up staying, putting some roots down in Montana. In book two, he's a little bit older. He's married, has a family. That's the life I know. And he wants to leave those those days of door kicking behind and, and sort of settle down, run his ranch. And it just doesn't work out for him. That's, uh, that's why country does so well, like ranch and Western, almost yeah. the way you put this together. That's another yeah, big sure. genre that you have a huge 
fan base. So add that in Thriller and you got a good deal, especially with all the do things from Outer Range to, again, we know all the other ones. What, what's it called? The one that's really popular with Kevin Costner. So you really... Yellowstone, yeah. I wrote it before Yellowstone. And I will tell you, when we took temperature from like publishers, it was like, I don't know if people want a modern day Western. I didn't fully see it that way myself. And I was like, I probably wouldn't call it that. Yellowstone came out, took off. And the next thing I know, every interview, I'm like, so it's a modern day Western. Um, yeah, so that's perfect. That's that's the, the gimmick. But you're hoping to show them that he's grown up, but he's not. Because guess what? You can't get out of that, Right. You cannot. No, no. Uh, enemies new and old unite, bring a war straight to Matthew Red's front door. And he is sort of forced back into the action and um, finds himself in, in a battle. He can't possibly, you know, lose, but can't really win on his own. And um, things spiral from there and really take off. Tell me how fantastic it is to have readers who read your books. I mean, it's like, like I have certain like the followers and social media or different things. Like when I go on Clubhouse, everyone loves to come hear me speak. I came back yeah. to Clubhouse after having taken a year off or a year and a half off, come back to specific places. It's got to feel good that there are people that just love what you do. You have those certain readers that couldn't wait till that second book came out. It, yes. And no one warns you how different it is putting the second book out from the first one. So my first book came out. You dream of it your whole life. I tested positive for COVID that morning. So they canceled oh, the tour, canceled all Not my good. interviews. No, it it sucked, man. Like, I was like, oh, this is not how I imagined this going. Uh, but the good news is you spend a year building a readership. Yeah, you, be, you, you start to gain fans of the series, of the characters. So when the second one dropped, yesterday was absolutely unbelievable. I was overwhelmed. So many people were tweeting me that they stayed up till 12.01 a.m. to get the Kindle. You know, the second it dropped, stayed up all night reading it. That is every thriller writer dreams of that, you know. Sincerely, that's what you hope for. People read your book, can't sleep. One more chapter, one more chapter. Stay up all night reading it. Uh, yes, I, I really think of the readers because I'm a fan of this genre. So I want, if you pick up one of my books, I want to entertain you. I want you to have fun. Right. And Can you be a New York Times bestselling author at one point or not? You well, have, was I? Yeah. Could no, you? No, I'm, look, I'm working. I'm trying. Um, no, I'm only on book two, but uh, it's Are definitely selling for the first one. Uh, the first one did not hit the times list, no. But anything else? Yes, some of the best selling, right? Or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had some lists, but that's kind of like the gold standard. Right, yes, because you do it right, you promote it right, and all those things. All right, so yeah. where's the best place people can find information, purchase your book, find about you, and also your blog and all that stuff, the website? Yeah, so um, therealbooksby.com. You can find everything about me there or ryansteck.com. I'm on uh, Instagram at Ryan Stack Author and The Real Books by I'm on Twitter or whatever Elon's calling it now uh, at Ryan Stack Author and The Real Books by.com. And Lethal Range is in bookstores right now. Find it wherever books are sold Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, Target, BAM, wherever. All right. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. You're listening, watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Climate Change, the Real Story podcast with our host, Dr. Robert Marks. Dr. Marks, how are you? And, you know, we're going to talk more than just climate change on this podcast now with a lot of other interesting topics we have as well. Isn't that right, sir? Isn't that true, sir? Yeah, yes, I, I was just uh, getting uh, the door closed in my uh, office. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to expand things into topics that I think everybody can identify with. It's been troublesome to people. But the underlying thing is that the, the, the climate change will always refer to, uh, and we can go back to some of the particulars as new developments occur. 
So the topic of today that I've chosen is why you can't trust big pharma, because I've been involved with them as their arch enemy for a while and have actually presented to the FDA. So I have some firsthand experience with them. Okay, excellent. Let's go do this. Okay. So uh, let me begin that many of you out there uh, already have a mistrust for big pharma. Uh, it might be due to the fact that you're paying a lot of money for the drugs that you get. Now, remember, we call them medicine, but they're really drugs. All of these so-called medicines are drugs that interfere with a normal body function. And they have benefits, and but they have risks and side effects that are underappreciated and very underreported. Now, you may also be mistrusting of big pharma uh, because of their obscene profits, uh, maybe because of the side effects that you might have had or the fact that they haven't really worked as well as you thought they did. So I think there's an underlying suspicion among the general public that big pharma is making a lot of money and are hyping their, their medications beyond what they're really capable of doing. I have firsthand experiences. Now, what I mean by firsthand experience, my own credentials are that I'm an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. I've dedicated most of my career to head and neck cancer surgery uh, and research on bone regeneration. In fact, I could bore you with a lot of my accomplishments and achievements, but that's not the point of this uh, podcast, uh, except that uh, I have presented to the FDA and found out a lot of the flaws that we have in our system. I have also been the expert witness against major drug companies related to osteoporosis drugs and to cancer-related drugs. And I have found their research to be substandard. In fact, if I would have done research protocol the way they've done, my University of Miami would never even have approved them. So there's a horrible lot of flaws. I can certainly say that you have a right to mistrust uh, drug companies and the FDA. Now, here are some things to know. The reason of this podcast is to let you know some actual facts so that you don't necessarily just accept my uh, personal view on this, that you can decide for yourself. First of all, the FDA is understaffed and underfunded. So guess what? The drug companies pay to have their drugs reviewed. They are not independent. They're not paid for by the government. The drug companies send money to the FDA. The FDA assembles a panel and they review uh, any drug for approval. Now, most of these are paid consultants to the drug company. They actually conduct the study. Um, I've been asked to do some studies and, and had to turn them down because of horrible misstatements in them. So my point is, can you already think a little bit of the bias that goes into a study that says this drug really works and does well if the people who are doing the study are paid for by the drug company? Not good. Okay. Are you aware of the generic drugs, which are popular, uh, from FDA rules only need to achieve 85% of the biologic value and may be up to 125% of the biologic value. Now, in the older population, uh, this gets to be a little bit serious, and I've witnessed some underdosing where there has been no side effect or no, no positive effects. Say some older person is taking high blood pressure medication, and he gets a batch from a generic uh, company that is 85% of what it should be. Well, his blood pressure goes a little bit higher and gets into dangerous levels. Secondly, what if he gets a batch, or maybe she gets a batch, excuse me for being 
uh, misogynist here, uh, that the uh, amount is 125% of the recommended value. In certain individuals, that's an overdose and may take somebody into hypotension, you know, reduced blood pressure. So I want you to keep in mind that some of the rules of the FDA uh, produce either a toxic overdose or sometimes an underdose. Okay, number three, the drug companies add 20% of to the cost for potential litigation because there's always litigations. In fact, that's where I kind of came in on the bone physiology for the bone-altering drugs of osteoporosis and those that deal with uh, cancer and metastasis. So they're already at 20%. And when I was on the witness stand, the companies who uh, I was testifying had faulty research, had $97 million retainers for the uh, drug company. You can see they've got more money than than you have bottles of water in the refrigerator. Uh, anyway, so let's go to the number fourth one. The drug companies boast that their drug uh, has a rigorously studied with randomized, prospective, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies to assure safety and efficacy. I've heard that time and time again. My answer to that, if that's true, what happened to thalidomide? What happened to Fusimac? What happened to Vioxx, Zantac, and another thing you're not aware of called Pepsin-15? All of these were approved by the FDA with randomized prospective double-blind placebo-controlled studies, which called level one research. They all don't exist on the market today, except for thalidomide, which is for another reason. So they had horrible side effects, never really found out by the paid researchers from the drug company. So there's horrible flaws and bias in there. When these drugs came out in the real patient world, they caused side effects that were never even um, found out by the drug company. And that's where I kind of came in. Uh, the other thing that they love to do is that they get um, uh, celebrities, often good-looking uh, celebrities, to advocate their product who know nothing about it whatsoever. Um, I'll get to that. So let me talk about a couple of the ones that I'm particularly aware of. Fosamax. Now, Fosamax is now off um, patent. It's now called a Lendronate. And roughly 20 million, or I'm sorry, 15 million women today are taking Fosamax or its generic alendronate for osteoporosis. Uh, they did a randomized prospective double-blind study. It came out in 1995. By the year 2000, we started seeing dead bone in the jaws, smelly, infected dead bone. Everybody thought it was due to radiation, yet the patients never received radiation. Uh, I was the one who exposed the fact that it was due to how their drug works. Their drug, almost most of the osteoporosis medications kill a normal cell in the human body. And when you do that, the that cell is there for a purpose. That particular cell is the one that rejuvenates bone. So what it did is it attacked the most remodeling active bone in the human body called your facial bones, particularly the lower and upper jaw, and caused dead bone. People lost teeth, got infected, had big surgeries uh, to deal with. It's still on the market today. Um, when I was asked to uh, identify the uh, the problem on the witness stand, I had researched 
all of their data. And what I found out is that they never looked at the mouth in their whole research study. Every one of their 10,000 patients, many of them complained of jaw pain. They wrote it off, oh, you must have a dental decay, you must have a, a root canal or something. No, it was. It, wasn't, it was dead bone to jaw. So how do you get a safety profile that's perfect? You don't look for it. They didn't have a dentist in the study. They didn't have somebody from my profession who's called an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. They just ignored it. And then they reported it as there's no problem with jaw bones with our particular drug. Well, uh, when we exposed that, uh, the company that produced Fosamax uh, settled out of court for $89 million. That was at least much less than the 20% they put away. This drug, Fosamax, when it was on patent, made the company $3.6 billion per year in the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, and still makes them over a billion dollars a year, even though it's generic. So to them, $89 million is a drop in the bucket to make up and, and develop what is called in the industry a blockbuster drug. A blockbuster drug is something that many people need. And, and again, Today, there's about 15 million women taking Alendronate, uh, some of which is still the uh, commercial brand called Cosimax. In fact, kind of a cute one that I, I wrote a letter to the FDA on is, if you remember Sally Fields, uh, an uh, older, very nice-looking uh, lady, she was uh, basically advertising uh, Boniva, which is a, a competitor. It's called Ibandronate. And she says in there, I know my bones are getting stronger because I'm taking denosumab, which is the, the name of the drug. Well, I wrote a letter to you. No, she doesn't know that. There's no way she can know that unless you took her bone out, you break it and measure how much strength it takes to do that, and then start them on the medication, take another bone out, and measure how much strength it takes to break that. That's what we do in animal research. We don't do that in humans. And that was just a subterfuge that many of the public believe because it's Sally Fields. We have internal trust in some of our um, celebrities, particularly people. In. Now, probably the biggest one to bring to your attention is the Vioxx scandal. The same company that produced Fosamax produced Vioxx. Now, in the mid-2000s, Vioxx came out as the best ever non-narcotic pain medication. It was what we all wanted. I prescribed it. Patients didn't need, after my surgeries, narcotics. They could take Vioxx. The problem with Vioxx is that when it came out and was used to the general public, 139,000 Americans died from Vioxx, from their heart problem. Vioxx, and I don't want to get into too much medicine, what's called a COX-2 inhibitor. The trouble is COX-2 is required to maintain the biologic strength of your heart. Now, to cover this up, the um, lead researcher was asked by the drug company to produce a research that would disguise it for three years to maintain the major market share. I read that email myself. She did. And it was a study comparing Vioxx to a competitor called Naproxen, which you would know as a lead. And the whole study with complicated statistics touted the superiority of Vioxx in controlling severe pain. There's four lines in there that alluded to the fact that um, 
that naproxen, or the Aleve, protected the heart. Well, Aleve doesn't. It can't do that. It doesn't have a mechanism. What really happened is that Vioxx had four and a half times the heart attacks and cardiovascular complications that occurred. Now, what finally happened with that, for your uh, knowledge, is that the judge uh, found out about this bogus research uh, and brought the uh, drug company executives in and told them to settle out of court. They did for $989 million, and they voluntarily withdrew Vioxx from uh, the FDA approval. And when you do that voluntarily, then the FDA does not look at your new submissions with any particular uh, uh, prejudice. Now, one that you're not familiar with, just as another example, is something called Pepsin-15. Now, this is in my wheelhouse. Uh, Pepsin-15 was a particle of cow bone that was purported to have a 15 amino acid sequence on its surface that bone-forming cells would flock to and be stimulated and form bone. I used it. I tried it. It formed scar tissue. It didn't form bone. It was a non-producer. So um, you can see their methods. The, the methods, kind of in a conclusion, they ignore and explain away side effects. They downplay and trivialize the side effects. Uh, they get credible celebrities to market them. They do saturation marketing. You can see, turn on your TV, watch a football game, watch a, a baseball game, watch Housewives of New Orleans or whatever, and you will see a horrible number of marketing of these particular medications, more so than uh, even beer commercials. And here's another trick that I found that they use. They use preliminary studies. And when they do a preliminary study, they find out what people don't respond well to their drugs. Is it men? Is it people under 18? Is it people over 45? And then when they do their study, they eliminate them with what's called exclusion and inclusion criteria. So this kind of blindsides the FDA on that and makes their results look a lot better. And they get rid of losers, as they call it. That's their language, not mine. They also develop what's called KOLs. A KOL is a, a, a person who has knowledge and sort of like is a, a, a physician who's an advocate of it. Key opinion leader is what KOL does. And I've been asked to be a KOL for a, a number of, uh, of entities. I've only selected a few that I did real research on and had confidence in. Um, another real trick is they cut a study short when it's not performing. Uh, one of the famous uh, ones for the cancer group, uh, compared to the placebo for the a study was for 15 weeks. Uh, at 10 weeks, uh, the um, the drug outpaced the placebo. But at 10 weeks, the placebo caught up with it. And actually between 10 weeks and 15 weeks, the placebo did better than the tested drug. So what the company did is that they ended the study at 10 weeks, never published the uh, data between 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15th week. And then they had a, a drug that outperformed the placebo and started bragging about. So my point to you all is the system is flawed and so are the CEOs and CFOs. 
Just keep going. I, I, we lost it. We we had, we had a drop. You're at the CFO and CEO. Keep reading from where you're at CFO and CFO to conclude. Oh, oh okay. I should, let yeah. me complete that last sentence. Are we ready okay. to go? Yeah. Okay. What I'm trying to tell you is that the system is flawed, and so are the CEOs and CFOs of these drug companies. They get huge bonus profits. They really don't seem to care about the side effects because they trivialize them and underreport them the whole time. So you as a potential patient out there, and I've had I've treated people for 45 years, uh, take only the medications that you really need. Discuss with your physician what medications do I really need and ask them two questions. The first question to ask is, what are the expected benefits that I'm to get from this? Is it going to lower my blood pressure? Is it going to lower my A1C? Is it going to keep me balanced? And the second one, what are the risks, the real risks, not the ones necessarily reported? What are some of the bad things that can happen? As you look at the advertisements on TV, they rail through them so fast, you can't find them. You can't pick up on them. And if you're listening really carefully, some of them are pretty dire. Um, and so uh, I, I'm basically saying don't trust a, a big pharma. You can't trust them. Uh, trust your physician as best you can and ask he or she to fundamentally give you some sound advice. And again, only take the medications that you really need and monitor the response. If it's a blood pressure medication, periodically take your blood pressure. Uh, if it's a, um, a, a diabetic medication, monitor your, your sugar, monitor your glucose, participate in your own healthcare, and you'll be much better off in the long Hope that helps. All right. That was Climate Change, The Real Story podcast, guys. You can go to, again, Amazon to purchase Climate Change, The Real Story. Appreciate it, Dr. Marks. Take care. Thank right, you. Bye. Thank you for having me. We're back to Neil Haley Show, and I'm first excited to welcome my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series and also CEO of Seniors Publishing. How are you, Paul? And I know you're excited about our guest. I'm great. Yeah, absolutely. We have Joe Gober today. He's uh, not only an author, but he's also a podcaster as well. And I, I've been on his show there. So you did great. Uh, all, all good stuff. And we're now we're now it's now uh, Joe's in the spotlight and he, it's his turn to talk. <laughs> hey, Joe, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about Joe, specifically writing and then podcasting. First, writing. How'd you write books? Yeah, one writing. Of the yeah, writing was the uh, end of the career thing to do. I'd worked in market research. I worked at the agency CIA. I worked at Motorola for 16 plus years. I worked as a political consultant for political campaigns overseas. I'm part time. I'm adjunct professor teaching, and now. I time to write. So I started actually writing right around the uh, year 1989. The week I was done with my first novel was the week of 9-11. And my book was about terrorism in Libya. So I, back in the old days, you wrote letters and mailed things. I ripped them open, wrote a new cover letter saying, hey, if not now, when? Sent them out, got some nice comments, but everybody was terror scared at that very moment, which ended up being wrong because all those books took off during the 2000s. And I, then I sat on it for a long time. And then in 2014, I decided to put it out, updated it. And then I have completing my new series, my third book in my new series, and I'm going to go on to the next stuff. So it's just something it's always, I've always wanted to do it. But I have been doing it. Finally got Great. it out. Sounds, sounds exciting. Now you, you were associated with the CIA and. Yeah. And, I went in the and Motorola. And Motorola. 
It was right. they were back to back because uh, agency eighty five ninety three and Motorola had the best intelligence organization for a corporation. In fact, it was first. Um, and so, if you could go anywhere as a with an intelligence background, Motorola was a place to go. I didn't have the business background, but I went there, learned the business, and then went to corporate. The person who ran corporate intelligence at Motorola was always a former CIA officer. I was the last before corporate sort of uh, dissolved into the different pieces of Motorola. All right, let's kind of talk about specifically enough the book. Tell us about your books, the books you've written. Okay, the first book, uh, Secret Wars, is almost autobiographical. It's a Libya propaganda operations, 1986, the bombing of Tripoli, uh, LaBelle disco bombing. Uh, very, very close to real truth. It was it, uh, 80% of it, uh, although it all made it through CIA pre-publications review like all my books have to. Uh, then I wanted to write a sequel. My writer friends said, don't write a sequel, write a contemporary book because this was set in 86. So I wrote a, started writing a book called the Spy Devil series. It's about a, a group of, like everybody, a group of expert covert action people who are sort of off, off the books, but not black. They're, they're more kind of like Mission Impossible meets John Wick meets, I don't know, the Avengers. And uh, they do things and they're sort of a family oriented oriented and it's a, a arc of china always sort of being my main adversary in in the book and the third one's coming out on november 14th uh, devil's own day which is a civil war phrase and um that should complete the arc although i'm leaving it open just in case i want to write a fourth one down the road um maybe some novellas or things but um it is in my mind the end of the end of the road right now i want to i want to do other things i want to get out of this get out of espionage right, go paul any questions no, go. go ahead go ahead no so so how why how the podcast started podcast like this i was uh, asked to be on a podcast some of my writer friends were on Al Warren's House of Mystery podcast on NBC radio. I was a guest. And then Al just sent me Al Warren, who writes real true crime. He's actually he's on documentaries. You see him. Uh, he just sent me a note saying, hey, what do you do during the day? And I'm like, well, I teach. And that's about it. And write. And he brought me in to be the guest host for people who write espionage and thriller books like Paul. So um, it gives me a chance to talk to Don Winslow and Greg Hurwitz and you know Don Bentley, all the names of people who are now writing all these all the the big uh, espionage thriller books, and I know them through emails and met them at a conference or two. But talking to them for an hour uh, really is a different uh, aspect, as you know. You can get dive deep, you know, get to know the people. We like to ask questions, not like what's your writing process, although it usually comes up. It's who are you? you know, basically, what do you do? What makes you think about writing? What's the themes? So we try to get people to say things that aren't just the usual cliche answers to, you know, do you get up in the morning? Do you have a certain time that you want to write? You know, okay, great. Um, but you get asked process, you know, do you do you write at home? Do you what how do you how do you do it? And it gives a, a flavor of who they are. And that and usually there's one or one a week. Next week I actually have off. Um, but you know, when I get a chance to talk to Don Winslow, jump on it or Paul, Paul, jump on it. Right. You know, I always learn something. I, I, I have a folder full of notes of when I talk to these authors, I'm learning, I'm writing and I try to promote it. And I say, I learned, I, I, I said the same thing for Paul. I learned uh, from their expertise and their processes or their comments. 
things I can swipe. I, oh, I mean, uh, things I can uh, use to my own advantage. Um, and it helps. If it helps me, I'm hoping it helps other people. That's totally what it sounds like to me. It's the, it's that whole process, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, 